Coming up on Chopper's Politics. He said, Frank, I'm your friend. This should be wonderful for you. The idea that the prime minister is laughing with you. And I said, no, actually, that's not. I really believe in what you're trying to achieve. I just, I would have begged him to take it more seriously. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, Chopper to my pals, Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph. And this is Chopper's Politics Podcast. It was the week when Boris Johnson's political career imploded over misleading the House of Commons about parties in 10 Downing Street during the COVID pandemic when they weren't allowed. We'll be discussing that and his reaction with Frank Luntz, US pollster and old university friend of Johnson. Also, Sir Bill Cash, for many the grandfather of Brexit, is retiring after achieving his life's work to take the UK out of the European Union. He'll be here in the Red Lion pub. And in a week when a Labour frontbencher said it was patriotic to pay your taxes, we'll be chatting to a millionaire who believes just that. But first, minutes before we started recording this episode of Chopper's Politics Podcast, the 30,000-word report into whether Johnson lied to Parliament dropped, with a 90-day ban for the former Prime Minister. Boris Johnson shot back with a 1,700-word attack on the committee, which to me had shades of Donald Trump. With me now is a US pollster who knows both men. Frank Luntz, welcome to Chopper's Politics. You're looking at me, but you're looking at a picture over my shoulder on the wall. Why is this? Because I love this location, because it is the definition of the UK, of Britain, of of Parliament. What a stinking pit. That's your language, not mine. (laughs) But they're throwing some guy in the air. He's going to land on top of them. You have Big Ben in the background. Yeah. You can see Parliament. I really want that photograph. But and the difference between someone from the UK and someone from the States is that I'm going to try to buy that photograph. And I'm telling you, I can't take it off the wall in the Red Line pub, Frank. I can't I'm, do that here. I've, been, not, I've done 350 episodes here. I'm not asking you to break the law, but I am asking your colleagues to see what it would take for me to own that, because I love this country. Yeah, we love having you here. Now, Frank, you're dressed like a Brit. I mean, you're dressed in a, in a Team GB shirt. You've got a red, white, and blue belt on, and your shoes are something which I think Nigel Farage would like to wear. They it's, are it's Union Jack, Jack trainers, yes, which is extraordinary. What are you, why are you doing it? For, is it for me, the Telegraph? Are you trying to convince me of something? No, it was actually just before this. I sat down with a gentleman who ran the Olympics for the UK was responsible for it. Subco maybe? And I wanted him to know just what a great experience it was, how good the Olympics were over here, how kind everybody was. I've had the opportunity to visit 18, 20 different communities and I'm toured by the MP and that's what's really cool. Mm -hmm. My tour guide, by day they govern the country, at night they take me around their country. And it has been one of the greatest things that the CPS has done for me. I should explain, of course, the Centre for Policy Studies, you're doing a big body of research work, aren't you, for them? And that'll be available soon on the the CPS's website. And it's all about freedom. And it really matters because freedom in both our countries, here and in the States, is in jeopardy. Mm. That people have come to take it for granted. They don't prioritise it as much as they used to. They think that it is really important for themselves, but they don't externalize it for the country. And that is very frightening to me. And our joint futures are wrapped up in a 
governmental commitment that no matter what they do, no matter what challenge you have in the NHS or COVID or education, in the end, the most important value that matters to both our societies is that commitment to freedom, to live the life that you want, to be able to do what you want, and not to be coerced by a government or people who think they know better than we do. We don't have a constitution here, do we? And the big concern during the COVID years here was that freedoms were being eroded by the state and they still are being eroded by the state and freedom should be, well, it's a right. It should be a right, but it's not codified anywhere. Well, but you do have the Magna Carta. Mm -hmm. You did set freedom out for so many other countries and ours, and I absolutely believe that there is a special relationship. We had a little bit of a dispute for, what, seven years? But we got over that. You did come back and burn our capital and okay. burn our White House, <laughs> okay. uh, which, which is good intent. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you failed. But I really think that what's happening in America is happening to a smaller degree here. Okay. And we are recording this within hours of when Boris is going to be chastised for his behavior. And I will surprise you. Boris is a friend of mine. I visited 10 Downing Street when he was prime minister several times. He's a very talented man. He's very smart. He has an ability to reach people in parts of this country that no conservative ever could. He is a hero when he walks into a pub in the northern part of England in ways that conservatives would be escorted out. But he has disappointed a country. And this is not what I was expecting. I thought that he recognized the opportunity that he had and that he would rise to the occasion. And in many ways, he did. Ukraine being the best example. Vaccines being a second example. He did And a, Brexit being a third, maybe. Living in, Brexit. In, in the, the end, he achieved much of what he sought. But his time was cut short because he didn't take it seriously what, wait, what do you make of his behavior that he issued a 1,700-word statement? We're recording this on Thursday morning. The statement dropped a few moments ago about this report on him lying to Parliament. The MPs say he's going to be banned for 90 days. That's the second longest in history. He may have his past removed so he can't come back into the House of Commons before he, the next election. He is calling it a kangaroo court. He's attacking the chairman as biased. He was... PM at the time of this inquiry being set up, he could have voted against Harry Harmer's appointment. He didn't. I mean, he is is a mini Trump in action here, isn't it? And you yeah, know about Trump. A, hold on, there's a big difference. Boris Johnson has written more books than Donald Trump has read. Okay. Boris Johnson has edited more books than Donald Trump has colored. So in. he should know better than Franklin. Absolutely. Because you were oxygen with him, weren't you? I think Absolutely. looking at the cuttings. You yes, were... I did polling for him and he ran for So why president. is a clever man behaving like Trump? Because there was nobody around him to say cut it out. He's doing it now though. But the more influence you have and the more freedom that you have, the greater the responsibility. And just as a newspaper asked me to comment on the threat that Donald Trump poses to democracy. There are people who are commenting right now on Boris Johnson really blowing such a wonderful opportunity. Yes, but is he threatening democracy? Absolutely not. It's a tragedy. If Boris were sitting where you are right now, you're three feet away from me, I would have said to him, why'd you do this? Come on, I know how bad COVID was. You got sick, really sick. You were saved by the NHS. Why didn't you 
rise to the occasion like you did at the Oxford Union, like you've done so many times before. And if something was wrong, you acknowledge it. Is it discipline? What is it? So many ways. So many ways. He's actually Churchillian. The man that he wrote. He would love you saying that. He thinks he is like Churchill half the time. Yeah, but the issue, which he would not love, and I did have the opportunity to brief him. It was such a great moment for me. I was so proud of him. And I'm saying to him, because he's cracking jokes at my expense, he said, Frank, I'm your friend. This should be wonderful for you. The idea that the prime minister is laughing with you. And I said, no, actually, that's not. I really want to help. I really believe in what you're trying to achieve. I just, I would have begged him to take it more seriously. I would have begged him to acknowledge mistakes are made. But there are a number of significant differences between the U.S. and the U.S. So we're not going full Trump in this country? No. With this behavior by Boris Johnson? And you had better not go full Trump because you will regret the results. Similarly, you better not go full woke. You see pitfalls and traps going forward. So Absolutely. You're, so you're worried, aren't you, that we're almost importing the woke culture rouse from the States, maybe some of the Trumpisms from the States? Exactly. And I've been through this. Don't do it. It poisons a country. It doesn't allow you to be what is great about the UK. There's a difference between the US and the UK. I think you're better educated. I think you're better informed on the issues than Americans are. I used to think that Americans were much nicer. I went to Oxford. I graduated in 87 with a DPhil, and Boris was there, and Simon Stevens was there, and Jeremy Hunt was there, and Ed Vasey was there, and Ed Llewellyn was there, a whole lot of people who become significant, Roland Rudd in, in, in the business community. We've lost the kindness that Americans used to have. We were loud and brash. We took pictures probably where we shouldn't. We walked on the grass that no one's walked on since Shakespeare. And I know myself, I got chewed out for doing it because I just didn't know. And I hated Oxford. I really did. Did you? The students were awful to me there. And if you talk to the people I just mentioned who knew me back then, they will say that they weren't nice to me. And now it is so different. And I have joy when I come off the plane okay. at Heathrow, which by the way, for the record... Please give Heathrow a third runway. Please be a modern country. <laughs> well, back to Boris Johnson, because he, he opposed the third runway at Boris Johnson. With, with at Heathrow. being focused on the future. What's your advice to your friend Boris Johnson at the moment? He needs some advice. He needs some, because he's, he he's issuing, he's issuing he Trumpy, Trumpy, and. Full throated apology. He must give one. That he need, that he, and he needs to mean it, not just say it. And stop the attacks on parliaments and committees and MPs and Because the rest. you're not, it's, yes, because you're not coming back that way. In fact, if you continue to bash the institution because you oppose how it's treated you, you're never coming back at all. I think Boris has a lot to contribute to British society. I think that we have a lot to learn from him, but not if you're petulant and not if you don't understand that what you did, even in the most understandable of circumstances, they were working hard. They were in close proximity. And you know what? I don't blame him for that. I do blame him for being dishonest about it. And just finally, on this research work you're pushing out, we'll put a link to the CBS's website in the show notes. What's, what are the broad brush findings you found from your tour of the country? Well, they don't want me to go too deep into it no, because just... it'll be accessible to everyone five or six days from now. But number one, the population does not appreciate freedom as much as they should because if you don't, it may be taken away from you. Number two is that there is a such a dramatic difference between those who identify with labor 
and what they prioritize and those who identify with the Tories and what they prioritize. It's one of the reasons why the differences in this country are getting sharper and uglier by the day. It's because even their values are different. Number three is that a 60-year-old conservative does not think the same as a 25-year-old conservative, that the age you are has such a great impact on what you believe and, and what you want for the future. And fourth is that this is a big country with plenty of room for everybody. Okay. And is the position of the Conservative Party, because you're a Conservative advisor, savable? Can they win the next election? I wouldn't call myself a Conservative advisor because Forgive I'm me, okay. For someone who knows Conservatism, can the Tories win the next election, Frank Luntz? It's going to be really hard. And it's going to be really hard because they've got 13 years of history behind them. And they're going to need a strategy, an ideology that breaks free of the past 13 years that they want people to look forward. Because if they look backward, they're going to say no. They're going to say, thank you for what you did. Thank you for helping us out of some of the challenges that we face. But we want something new. Frank Luntz, legendary pollster and author of some important polling from the CPS coming shortly. Thank you for joining us this week in the Red Lion Pub, the historic Red Lion Pub for Chopper's Politics Podcast. The viewers, listeners, have got one question for you. Am I getting that picture behind you? That's what they want to know. Let's, 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 let's rip off the wall, Louise, and no one will notice. Frank Luntz there. Now, for many, Sir Bill Cash is the parliamentarian who defined the Brexit cause, raising it again and again in the House of Commons for decades, until finally he won the argument when millions of people voted to leave the European Union in 2016. Now Sir Bill is off too. He's quitting as an MP after 39 years in the House of Commons. Sir Bill Cash, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. And, and great to see you. It's a busy day in Westminster. The, the report into Boris Johnson has just dropped, but you're, you want to hold your judgment, do you? Yes, I do, because the first and most important thing is this is a House of Commons matter, and it will be considered on the floor of the House, I believe, on Monday. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say anything publicly about it until no. I've actually had a chance to read the report, which I haven't done yet. But more than that, that whatever I say yep. will be on the floor of the House of Commons. As, and you're, I should say, having been the first journalist to write about the danger of this inquiry when it set up back in April, May to Boris Johnson, and no one, apart from you, you gave me a ring and said, you're onto something here, Hope. And yes, I, I did. I kept writing it. Well, Chris, that is true. And I put down an early day motion. And that was the position. But I'm not going to make any no, further comment now. No, you're not. But you're a parliamentarian and you know how the system works. And when you, you have announced the weekend that you're standing down and one of your colleagues sent me a text saying, this is a loss to democracy. Oh, did he? Well, <laughs> yeah, I can only say... Uh, Are I, you a loss to democracy, Bill? Well, Gash? I would only say that I've devoted my entire life in Parliament to the question of sovereignty and democracy, but many other things as well, like yes. the whole question of protecting women and children. Yes. You were elected when as a Tory MP? Uh, it was May 1984 yes. in the Stafford by-election. Yes. Unusually, we won a couple of by-elections That's right. that day. That's right. Second term Thatcher, so it was getting yes. better for her. Well, it was actually a very difficult time. Mm. I mean, there were huge issues about milk quotas, which mm. I won't go into in my no. constituency, which created enormous... farming constituency. A farming constituency. But it was a very, very great experience for me. And basically, I've been in there re-elected every time since 1984. 
And just as an anecdote, which is a very interesting historical one, is that Hugh Fraser, who was my predecessor, had represented pretty much the same constituency boundaries since 1945. Gosh. And there have only been two MPs in that area generally since 1945, him and then me. That's unusual. I should say it was very, That's very 80 years stretch. You're not father of the house, are you? No, I'm not. No, no. I, some call me the grandfather of the house. But it's not quite... I'm the oldest member of the house. Why aren't you? Because it's Peter Bottom. No, no, because it goes by tenure. The length of time that you've actually been in Parliament. Yes. And I think he came in in 1974. Okay. Now, of course, yeah, you came an MP in 84, and then you joined the European Scrutiny Committee... Yes, I was actually asked to join within a year. So I joined it in 1985 and I've been on it ever since. Somebody told me the other day it's the longest tenure of any membership of a select committee. Is that 28 years? I think it's more than that. 38 38 years of one committee. Yes, and I've been chairman since 2010. Yes. So basically I've spent quite a lot of time doing it. You pick up a thing or two. Uh, You've just been made a companion of honour. Yes. In um, Boris Johnson's resignation honours list. For, that was for conspicuous service in the national interest. Yes, that that's, is, what they, that, that's what they say. That is yes. Brexit. That, for me, that's the first award anyone has got from the establishment for Brexit. Is that right? I, I think it's probably right. I, I can't I, think I, of an award similar to that. All I'd say is that when I came on to the committee in 1985, I happened to come across something that I did actually in January 1985 and that was to bring in a small business bill. And in my speech on that, I referred to the issue of the inhibiting character of the European laws and regulations, which I said were frustrating our growth and our productivity, and were creating over-regulation. And I made that point in that speech. Is that what drove you on then? So it was always about sovereignty and the European Union at the beginning? Because back then yes. it, was, it was a trading community, wasn't but remember, it? Remember, uh, I say remember, but I, I, I had been a constitutional lawyer for many, many years before I came into Parliament. And I'd done a lot of things uh, without going into all the details, which were uh, things like dealing with the issue of Quebec in relation to Canada. Yes. I was advising Quebec and things of that sort of character and scale. And the issue of democracy is, to me, everything. But back in 85, though, it wasn't under threat, was it? Because the, the European project wasn't really started then, had it? Oh, in 1985. Or, the pro- the or do you see the warning signs then? Oh, no, it was much more than a warning sign. No, no, no. I mean, even the issue in my by-election on milk quotas yeah. was about European lawmaking. And I had actually been made chairman of the deregulation unit when Margaret Thatcher and Keith Joseph set up the Centre for Policy Studies back in the 1970s. So I've been taking great interest in the main issue for me is self-government for the British people and that they should be absolutely and have the right to be able to make their own decisions based through their own members of parliament in our own parliaments in the United Kingdom. What was a turning point in your mind that stopped People like Margaret Thatcher supporting, for example, EEC membership ahead of 73 and the confirmatory referendum after that. Was it the Bruce speech in 88? Well, I, I, I was actually... But you, were, I, you, were, I, were I was, you ahead of that? I was writing to her. I have a, letters between us in the 1980s, in 1988, yeah. before the Bruce speech. I sent her a whole series of papers about what I call creeping federalism. Mm. And there are those who would say that I was regarded as the torchbearer by Margaret Thatcher on European issues. 
And for years and years, of course, you made these points on sovereignty in the House of Commons. And yes. some colleagues would be groaning, groan, here he, he's off again on his heart, well, hobby horse. It, well, let them do it by all means. Because actually, if well, the sovereignty of Parliament doesn't exist, no. or if, if it's being severely curtailed by a voluntary abdication yes. of sovereignty, then I would have thought that it was pretty important to say the very, very least. And you sat on that committee. Were you able to do much scrutiny? I called it an ironically named scrutiny committee because the volume of stuff coming your way from Brussels meant you couldn't do your job properly. Well, actually, I wouldn't say that because actually the European Scrutiny Committee is an incredibly efficient organisation. So you think you did do enough scrutiny of EU legislation? No, the problem wasn't the scrutiny. The problem was not being able to do anything about the outcome. Mm. Basically, the laws were coming at us like a tsunami from Europe. And as we went through the Single European Act, more and more majority voting affecting our so you could e- econ- about it. our economic performance and productivity and all the things that we need to do to achieve growth. And basically, the whole of the scrutiny process was based on our standing orders, which says that it's our job to scrutinise the legislation, the tsunami that comes in every week, which we do, and then we still do it in relation to Northern Ireland in particular. And basically, uh, then to decide whether it's legally or politically important. Mm. And then we would recommend it for debate. But that's when the trouble began, because you couldn't change the law, because Section 2 of the European Communities Act didn't allow you to do so. Because of sovereignty. Because the sovereignty had been abdicated in this area. Do you think we now have Brexit? Have you got the sovereignty back you've campaigned all your life for? Oh, yes, we certainly do. Do you worry about how it's being implemented? I mean, people tell me that, you know, let's use this term, the Remain blob has wrecked the transfer of power that the British people gave to London from Brussels in, in 2016. There'd been an amazing amount of power gone to this place around as Whitehall, and, and it's been squandered. No, no, not well, at you all. don't believe no, that? No, actually, we were dealing with a retained EU law bill, which is the scrapping of EU laws. But that's the case the in point. adopted my amendment so that we're now going to have a list which is going to set out, not the one that's ridiculous junk that's in the current schedule, but a, a real list of what they're going to revoke or to reform. So you have, you have faith in them delivering the they Brexit campaign upon for? Us. It was subjugation. That, of course, that, that's, okay. And that's why Brits voted to leave the European Union. That's I'm trying what, to think, that's I, I want that's to ask what you, it was all about. Seven years hence, from yes. that point, I want to know whether you think it's the Brexit you've campaigned for is being delivered properly. Some say it's not. That's the point. Well, it? there are two factors. The very first one is that Brexit was immediately followed by COVID and then, of course, Ukraine. So a lot of people who are currently okay. saying that the cost of living, inflation, interest rates and the rest of it is affecting our economy, actually are forgetting that the real reason for the inflation and for the difficulties that we've experienced are not from Brexit. They are actually from the Ukraine war, energy costs, inflation, etc. I don't think Brexit has got much to do with the recession in Europe. Could it be? (laughs) Has it got anything to do with the recession in Germany. Okay, no. good point. So that answers the point. And I really think that when I challenged them in the House of Commons the other day, I said to several members of Parliament during the debate, I challenge you to get up and say to your constituents that you want to be governed by majority vote behind closed doors without a transcript, and nobody dared get up. Now, Bill Cash, I read somewhere that you are the cousin 
of Johnny Cash. Well, cousin, the, the man in black. Uh, is this correct? Well, look, the Johnny Cash family we know very well, and actually we all stem from the same root in the 17th century. The same Cashes. And they went to America, and there was a chap called William Cash the Mariner, and it's very well documented. I haven't done all the research on it, but they have. And the bottom line is that there is a route, a genealogical yes. connection. And Roseanne Cash, for example, we meet, there's his daughter. Oh, right. uh, and we have very good working friendships yeah. with the them. American cousins. Well, that's right. I mean, it, saying a cousin is usually something much closer than I think this is. But nonetheless, yes. we're very good friends and there is a distant relationship. But I'm very proud. And by the way, I was a massive fan back in in the days when, you know, he was the greatest and still remains in yes. many people's minds. Yes. I am Johnny Cash, you know, <laughs> you see it. And I love it. He's a, he's a tremendous person, tremendous character. Very proud of the fact that uh, I have this rather distant connection. What's next for Bill Cash? You're standing down. You'll see more. I call it retiring. You are retiring. I'm a, 83. 80, yes, you are 83. And I will be 84 in May next year. When the election And that's be. about the time of the election, maybe a bit later than that. So actually, if I was to come back again for another five years, I'd be 89, pushing 90. And uh, as I said, I don't really want to be carried out in a coffin. House of, <laughs> House of Lords beckoning? <laughs> no idea. You know, these things are all part and parcel of whatever. There, there is have. something called the European Affairs Committee in the House of Lords, isn't there? Yes, there is indeed. Peter Ricketts yeah. just been elected the chairman. Yeah, yes. You want to I'm, challenge him? I'm, no, I'm just having a meeting with him being set up right now as we speak. We, we come at it from very different positions. This is a huge constitutional matter about who governs this country. And the House of Commons is really the place where those things have to be decided because we are elected. How would you like to be remembered, Bill Cash? Basically as somebody who tried to do the right thing for the right reason and always to do it with a degree of toleration fairness, but also to insist on what was the right thing to do and to do it in a manner which, generally speaking, I would be happy to accept as the right approach to life. It's a matter of conviction, but it's also a moral issue. It's about how to do things the right way and hopefully to get them right. And if you get it wrong occasionally, then to actually accept the fact that sometimes things don't quite work out the way you hoped. And maybe you approve right in the end. Some people would say that that was true. <laughs> and I'm very, very glad that the jury I, I'm is very out. proud of the starting the Maastricht Rebellion, Maastricht Referendum Campaign, 1993, and all that's flowed from it. And I've dedicated my life to democracy and sovereignty. And at the moment, I'm very, very happy that things have been going better than a lot of people are complaining about. The Remainers are doing everything possible to try to undermine it. They are wrong, but they're not only wrong because it's the wrong thing to do because the British people made the decision and the Acts of Parliament were passed. And remember that it went through by a very big majority. General election, Boris Johnson, 2019, December. Sir Bill Cash... On that note, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Sir Bill Cash there. Right, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, should millionaires pay more in tax? And is that even a controversial thing to say? Right after this. In March... The Daily Telegraph broke a story. 
Former health secretary Matt Hancock has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages. The Daily Telegraph says it's obtained thousands of WhatsApp messages. On the 100,000 leaked WhatsApp messages revealed. Oh, some poor so-and-sos had to go through those. And now those same poor so-and-sos are going deeper. The stunning incompetence of the British state was absolutely extraordinary. The Covid inquiry may be underway. They definitely knew what they were doing when they took them out of the hospitals into the care homes. But you shouldn't have to wait years for answers. You've got lockdown. There is no way that that isn't going to have a massive impact. If I had sit on that material to protect politicians' dark secrets, I don't think that would have been an honourable thing to do. The Lockdown Files podcast from The Telegraph. Follow now, wherever you're listening to this, to make sure you don't miss an episode. And we're back. Now this week, Labour frontbencher West Streeting said it was our patriotic duty to pay taxes. And surprisingly, some millionaires agree. Phil White is a member of a group called Patriotic Millionaires UK. And he joins me now down the line from his yacht in Salcombe Harbour. Phil White, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Hi, Chris. Phil, what is a patriotic millionaire? Well, a patriotic millionaire is someone who is very, as the word says, patriotic, believes in the country that we live in very strongly, believes in the UK, and wants to use the wealth that we've accumulated in whatever way as part of that country, if you like, and to improve the well-being of the UK. Um, so that's where the patriotism idea comes from. And so we're advocating actually for higher tax on the wealthy. We're saying, actually, come on, we can afford to pay more. We can afford to contribute more. We'd like to play a bigger part in the development of society and how things are in this country. So come and tax us. How big would you go with your top tax rate then? Well, we're advocating a couple of percent on wealth above £10 million. And so, um, you know, which isn't onerous. I mean, we're looking at, you know, maybe the top 1% or fewer of the people who can really afford that £10 million as individual wealth is actually quite a lot of money. You know, we're not looking at people with a moderate house in London, this kind of thing. This is extreme wealth. And that is broadly agreed on, I think, both in the literature and by the public as being extremely wealthy. It's above five, £10 million. So say a couple of percent above £10 million. So that's £10 million in assets, is that right? Not including property or including property? Well, there's a lot of detail there. I mean, that would in principle include everything. But we're not implementing a policy. This is An idea. Right. And the way you do it, it'd be 2% of the £10 million, is that right? Or a bit more on income tax or what? There would be thresholds and progressive and so on. So, yes, it would be 2% above that threshold. So, actually, it would start to kick in. And, you know, our, our thinking is that, you know, return on wealth is probably 5 7% per annum. So, actually, 2% of that, the wealth, is not devastating, if you like. But it no. will start to make a difference. Are there any figures on how much it might raise? Have you done some numbers on those yet? Yeah, and, and that would raise $50 billion or thereabouts. There are other things we should be doing, such as equalising the tax on income from wealth in dividends and that kind of thing with tax on income from earnings. Because at the minute, we see that people who are getting their income from wealth pay less tax than those that work for it. And that that doesn't seem right. And if we do all those things, then we are talking about tens of billions of pounds. Have any parties yet picked up on your idea? 
Well, we see support for it in the, the Greens and the Liberals, I think, but neither the Conservatives nor Labour uh, seem to be doing it. I mean, we saw that announcement from Wes Streeting, I think, yesterday, saying that he would hope the wealthy would behave better in terms of avoiding loopholes and of not taking advantage of loopholes and this kind of thing. But no, we're not seeing them advocating implementing wealth taxes and so on at the moment. Very clear. I would like to see that happen. Yes, that's right. Where Streeting made some remarks, people have been clobbered on lower middle incomes. And he says that people don't have the luxury to manage their tax affairs offshore. He used the term patriotic duty, didn't he, mm. to people to pay their taxes. Is, is that what you feel as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if we think about how this works, we elect a government and then we give that government a budget to do those things which are better done collectively than individually. Mm. And, you know, that's things like defence, health service, roads, all those all those other good things. And, you know, I'm proud of that system. I, really, I think that system works really well. And so, you know, we all contribute to a common pool. Government does those things which are best done collectively. But, you know, at the minute, it hasn't got enough money in that system. We've got our public infrastructures in a really poor state. We've got schools literally falling down. We've got the NHS, not described as on its knees, but more flat on the floor, We've got water and energy supply crises in terms of quality of water and so on. And it's not happening. So we need to fix those. I get all that. But do you worry about how the government will spend your money? So the big concern whenever I talk to high net worth individuals is they just feel that they're earning this money, but it's kind of wasted or squandered by the state. And so they want to find a way. Often they like to give money to philanthropic causes and direct it to good causes. Yeah, I know that. And I do understand that. And, you know, I can be as critical of the government as anybody in terms of how money is spent or wasted, whatever. I think they are separable problems, actually. One is funding of things and the other is how we hold the government to account and actually make sure that they spend the money wisely. And, you know, we do have some democratic safeguards in that and they're probably not quite good enough. That we then look at philanthropy, which, as you say, is the other option that high net worth individuals go down. The trouble with philanthropy is, yeah, you can fix some symptoms of problems. You can maybe help homeless people or help education or do some things with that. But you can never fix root causes. Only governments can do that. They need the money and the wherewithal, the public support to get on and do it. Yes. And so that's where it comes in. Yes, Phil, I'm here in the Red Lion pub and you're in your yacht in Solcombe Harbour. Do you not think that people might listen to this and think it's all very well for Phil White, he can afford it? But what about people who are on our knees here? And the idea of more tax is, is a problem. I suppose you're, you're saying it's only paid by the very top end, aren't you? Absolutely. The idea is the top end are the people with the broad shoulders who can afford it. And, yeah, we should be contributing more. And this group is called Patriotic Millionaires UK. It's a sister group of a US group called Patriotic Millionaires, isn't it? And how, how many members do you have in it? I mean, in the UK, we've probably got 40, 50 members, I think. Now we're growing. We've only been around for about 18 months And we are growing that quite nice. We've got some fairly high profile names that you'll know as well. In the US, it's much bigger and they've been running for 10 years over there. Who are the big names who you can name? Well, there are people involved like Ian Gregg is involved, who you'll know from Gregg's High Street. Of course, yeah. There are other people involved who don't want to be named publicly necessarily, but are supporters. And we do have this thing that we have a lot of people supporting, if you like, who are millionaires, but don't necessarily want to be in the in the front line, so to speak. You must come across uh, other high net worth individuals in all parts of your life. Do you try and urge them to pay more tax? Yes. I Well, I urge them to support this movement because, again, 
you know, that not to pay more tax specifically themselves, because obviously tax shouldn't be voluntary. And so, again, we are looking to support pressure on governments to implement the tax across all high net worth individuals. Because, again, if only one or two people pay it, we come back to this philanthropy point. Actually, that's not solving problems. We need everybody who can afford to pay more to do exactly that. And then we get this solidarity and we yeah. we end up with a much less fractured society, I think, as well because people are seen to be contributing according to what they can. Yeah, to tax in some sort, of course, is the tie that binds us all together in this country. We pay for services that way. Uh, then what do you think of non-DOMs? People who pay a fee to be here but don't pay taxes in this country. I think that's a, a travesty and should be stopped. I see no justification for that at all, I'm afraid. Have you worked out what your tax rate is? I'm retired. And so ah. the irony of this is I pay tax on income from the wealth I have, I don't pay income tax. So again, my tax rate is relatively low compared with when I was working, which is, to my mind, crazy. And I can't take it with me at the end of the day. So, you know, let's do something useful with it. But I don't know if you have any family, Phil, but your family might think, well, you know, hang on, Dad. (laughs) I wouldn't mind having something myself. My family is very supportive of this. And yeah, it's spending the kids' inheritance, absolutely. (laughs) But no, they're on side with it. So we're cool. Have you tried to get a talk to Labour about this? I mean, Labour are the one party, aside from the Greens Lib Dems, who look like they are going towards maybe some form of wealth taxation, although Rachel Reeves has denied that. Well, they are. And these things are always very emotive. And obviously, you know, Labour is kind of very, very nervous about the policies it announces before it actually officially announces its manifesto. Yeah, I mean, we do try and put pressure on the Labour Party as well. As you say, at the moment, they're resisting. I hope they will change their minds. And we see, for example, that recognition that there isn't enough money in the coffers to do a lot of things Mm. like the climate investment and so on. Mm. And actually, we are saying to Labour Party, you know, come on, if you, you know, we need more money to enable you to do the social and public infrastructure things you want to do. And we are a source of that money if you come and tax us. You say 2% on wealth of 10 million going upwards. But the concern is always, isn't it, that as soon as the Treasury start a new tax, they never get rid of them. They keep them there and they become pernicious and they start to impact on those with lower amounts of money. I recognise that nervousness. But I think, you know, if we come back to sort of values of the country, what people want from the country, most people you talk to, you know, they're concerned about their kids or future generations and the country we're leaving behind as long as just what's going to happen in the next five years. And you know, if we're going to leave that country that is fit for future generations, then we have to contribute to it. And again, I think we should be proud of what we're doing and what we're going to leave behind us as well, as well as just what we're doing now. So, you know, yes, hopefully taxes are pernicious and it, or it doesn't get withdrawn in 10 years time because there's an ongoing need for this. And as our GDP, as our economy grows and we get to be a more wealthy country so we can afford to do more to make a better country of that, rather than just, if you like, take more and more as individuals from that country and squirrel it away in a bank somewhere. Are you a member of any political party, Phil? This isn't about party politics, really. This is about wealth taxes and so on. But are are you a Lib Dem or or a Labour supporter? I vote how I vote. But, Mm. you know, as I say, it's not, this isn't about party politics. And I think that's really important because... You know, no matter which party I may or may not support, I would be saying exactly the same things. Within, you know, the Patriotic Millionaires group in the UK, I'm sure we have people who do support particular parties and people from all parties.
Phil White from the Red Lion Pub is the first interview I ever, ever carried out with someone on a yacht. But appropriately, you are a member of Patriotic Millionaires UK. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you, Phil. Okay, thanks, Chris. Now, just before I go, listeners, I want to tell you about a new Telegraph podcast launching this week. I think you might like it. Claire Newell, our investigations editor, joins me now. Claire Newell, for listeners living under a rock, reminds again what your story, The Lockdown Files, was all about. It was Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages, the former health secretary, and Isabel Oakeshott, the political journalist, gave them to the Telegraph. Gosh, how many? So 100,000 messages, and they showed how the government were responding to key decisions in the pandemic, like closing schools or care homes. So it kind of lifted the lid on all these controversial mm. moments. And you can't just... Shove them all in the paper, can you, when you no. get that kind of leak? I mean, because I've worked on the MP expenses scandal and everyone thinks that was easy. You just simply shove it all in the paper. You can't, can you? That's what you can't do with this information. No, exactly. You have to be really careful and take lots of time going through the messages, working out what's the public interest here? You know, does anything contradict public statements? What's important? We spent two months trying to work out, well, what are the potential stories? And finding a narrative. Yeah. So how does that sort of throwaway remark from Hancock to go, for example, what was happening at that very moment elsewhere in exactly. what we know? What does it all mean? So you might have a look at one WhatsApp message and think, oh, you know, that seems interesting. But the significance only becomes clear later on when you maybe watch a press conference mm. or you look at some care homes guidance to understand well what was being mm. said at the time, what was happening. And the value of WhatsApp is you get the immediate response to an event as it's happening in real time, don't you? So context is all. And WhatsApp, of course, have featured heavily in the news again with a legal challenge from the government saying we're not going to give over other WhatsApps from other cabinet ministers to the official inquiry run by Heather Hallett into the COVID pandemic. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, really, because the government set up this COVID inquiry. And now they're taking the inquiry to court so they don't have to disclose everything. It seems a bit off. So what's happening this week then? We are, this is a podcast called Chopper's Politics Podcast. Are you now going to be a podcaster too? Well, exactly. We're doing more podcasts. This one's going to be looking at really the COVID pandemic, the decisions that were taken and using the messages to try to understand mm. well, what happened here and to make sure that we can hold people to account. So is your podcast about the scoop that you broke or about the pandemic and the response? So the both of those things. Uh, we're going to start by looking at the messages and think, well, what do these messages show us about what was happening in government at the time? But then we want to take the next step. So we want to interview people involved. So who's on? So someone like Kwasi Kwarteng, who was the former chancellor, but a business minister. Nadim Zahawi, who was the vaccine minister. Also former chancellor. Yeah, ex exactly. Lots, lots of chancellors. A whole range of people, so government advisors as well, trying to give us the inside track what was happening in the room. So it's a great sort of soundtrack for a week in which this pandemic's inquiry started. But is there any, any real need for you to do it, given we're going to hear it in real time in Heather Hallett's investigation? Well, one of the criticisms of the inquiry is it's going to be really slow. It's going to take years and Glacial. years to report. Yeah. So actually, there is a kind of imperative to get this information out quickly. And we think it's in the public interest to do so. Well, Claire Newell, I look forward to listening and finding this podcast. What's it called again and where do I find it? It's called The Lockdown Files and you can find it where you find all the rest of your podcasts. Well, do tune in. It'll be a great listen. Thank you, Claire. 
And that really is all for this week, listeners. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you to my guests this week, Frank Luntz, Sir Bill Cash MP, Phil White, and our very own Claire Newell. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Elliot Lampitt. And most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. For more insights into the wonderful world of Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. It arrives straight into your email inbox every weekday, and the link for that will be in the show notes this episode. And don't forget to read my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out every Friday at 7pm online and in Saturday's copy of The Daily Telegraph. And as always, please do buy a copy of The Telegraph, if you can, where you can. And until next time, here from the Red Lion Pub, cheerio!